Hey everyone, this is Ben and Alex. Welcome back to the Oregon Bridge. What are the focuses? Public health, public safety, education, right, for your families, and to be able to earn an income, right? Those are always the top things that come about. So how do we preserve that and keep people safe? I want the GOP to be respected in this state. I want to see a bigger presence from the diversity side of it. I want to see a bigger movement to represent that conservative values when we go so far to the left that we have to bring some balance back to the right. All right, everyone. Today's guest is Lori Chavez Dreamer, a former mayor of Happy Valley. She served two terms as mayor. And before that, she was a city councilor, council president, and served on the Parks Committee. So lots of local government experience. She also ran two very competitive races for the Oregon State House against Representative Janelle Bynum, uh, narrowly losing both times. Um, she briefly considered running for, for governor in 2018 and um, ultimately decided not to and, and let... Uh, Representative, then Representative Newt Bueller run, which um, is a topic of our, our conversation that I think is worth worth listening to. And she's considered by many to be a potential candidate for Oregon governor in 2022. And I don't know, Alex, I imagine she would probably be one of the top tier contenders. Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, she's clearly shown uh, that she can raise money. Uh, she's an absolute bulldog, as you'll see through the episode. Uh, and really for you guys, I want to flag, I think it's basically 35 minutes into 53 minutes, but Ben and Lori actually have a fascinating back and forth about uh, Governor Brown's response to COVID, about Rep. Janelle Bynum and running against her, uh, about racial politics and what the future looks like that in Oregon. And again, we don't want this to be a political debate show. That's not really our mission. That's not what we set out. But I do think there's an interesting uh, component there of basically the new media in terms of what we're trying to do with this podcast, right? If Ben and Lori were on a TV show together uh, and they each had 35 seconds to speak, uh, Lori would have called Ben a radical leftist and Ben would have called Lori a radical conservative. And that would basically have been the end of the conversation. You know, you'd probably see some, you know, commercial about vitamins or something after that, <laughs> uh, because that that's what you get when you watch news. But I mean, you know, and of course they weren't able to agree on any of these issues, but I just thought it was such a fascinating back and forth because, you know, basically they were able to take 20 minutes to really discuss uh, and really dive into the details of some of these complex political issues. So uh, we're hoping that, you know, that's really what we set out to do is, is add a lot of meat and context to different uh, tough issues that people are trying to tackle. So I think that Ben and Lori were able to, to do something, something good there. And Ben, I'm curious, what do you think that you know, I mean, obviously, Lori has a, some pretty strong positions on a number of things. Uh, she clearly seems like she's someone who's uh, diving to get back into the fold. You know, what are the Democrats, what do the progressives think about someone like Lori? It's a good question. Um, and I think, you know, we talk about this a little bit at the end of the podcast, but the, the Democratic primary for Oregon governor in 2022 is going to be wild. There's going to be, you know, potentially the state treasurer, potentially the secretary of state, potentially the labor commissioner, potentially the speaker of the house, potentially the Portland mayor, um, a couple of folks in the private sector, Multnomah County chair. There's a bunch of people who are considering running. So candidly, I think most Democrats believe that the winner of that primary is going to be the next governor of Oregon. And it's certainly, I'm sure, going to take a lot of hard work and they're going to need to raise millions of dollars and knock on hundreds of thousands of doors. Um, but the Republican Party, since I think 1980, hasn't held um, the governorship. And the closest they came, I think, was Chris Dudley in 2010. Um, so I think Lori's got a lot to prove, just like every other Republican running for, for statewide office. Um, they're going to have to prove that they're viable before Democrats really start getting worried. I think what was interesting... Yeah. What was interesting about this podcast was it's a different tone than our first three podcasts. Um, Lori's a very aggressive figure. She's got strong opinions. Um, she calls out Governor Brown. Um, she called out her former opponent, Representative Janelle Bynum. And it was sort of, you know, as a, I'm obviously learning the ropes of the, of the podcast hosting business like you are. Um, and I disagreed with a lot of what she said. And so I was trying to present my viewpoint, but I really do think that folks would benefit from hearing for example, Representative Bynum answer some of the, the questions or charges raised by 
uh, Lori and similarly, like, you know, someone from the, the governor's office, um, because I obviously can't speak for them, but I can speak about my opinion. So um, it is our intention to to have um, Representative Bynum on the show if she's interested to talk a little bit more about, you know, the sort of question of whether, you know, how, how much representation matters. Uh, and it was interesting because Lori is a woman in the Republican Party and she is a person of color in the Republican Party. So hearing her views and how she talks about those issues and issues of identity versus how progressive folks like me talk about those issues. Um, it was it was actually um, a lot different than I expected it to go, but I think will be interesting for listeners to hear. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And we will have to send uh, the, the the clip with all of the spicy takes to, to Rep Bynum's office. And maybe maybe that will give her the thrill uh, to want to, to want to come on and join us. So, uh, but yeah, everybody, we hope that you enjoy the episode. Uh, again, I think it's it's definitely a lot more spicy, a little bit more heated than our other ones in the past. Uh, but yeah, we hope that you will enjoy it. And uh, again, make sure to hit the subscribe button. Uh, make sure to give us five stars. Uh, make sure to tell all of your friends about us, share our Substack, share our Twitter, a lot of great material on there. Uh, and we just thank you guys again. We, you know, we really want to hear your feedback too. Let us know in the comments, uh, send us an email, let us know what you guys are thinking. We'd love to hear some of your responses to this. So thanks again for, for tuning in and we'll see you in the next one. And one last plug before we go, we are on Twitter. Follow the Oregon Bridge podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at Oregon Bridge pod. Uh, and you can tweet us your thoughts on the episode or recommended guests in the future. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again, everyone. Well, great. Well, Lori, thank you so much for, for coming on the Oregon Bridge. We're really excited to, to have you on here. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I think this is an exciting thing that you guys are doing, and I'm proud to be on here and talk about some of the Oregon issues that we're having. So thanks for having me and inviting me. It's our pleasure to have you. And I, before we jump into some of our questions, you just spent some time in Arizona. So curious, what was going on in Arizona? Are you doing business in Arizona and Oregon? Uh, what's your current uh, professional situation? Well, we own and operate our company here in Oregon. My husband and I, we've had that company now for, gosh, almost 16 years. So I was in Arizona. I've had a second house there since my daughter, one of my twins, went to Arizona State. She graduated, though, in 2016, but we've continued to maintain a home over there. So I was just spending some time down there, selling a house, buying another one. I'd like to eventually retire, playing some golf in the sunshine. So we'll see how that goes. But for now, we're, we're here in Oregon, uh, working hard in our business and, and moving forward. Awesome. Well, welcome back to America's best state. Uh, we're glad to have you back in Oregon. Um, okay, so before we jump into um, some of the, the topical questions about what, what's going on in our state and in our national politics, we wanted to kind of set a foundation um, and for the listeners, if you can describe like where you see yourself fitting into the modern day Republican Party. So we spoke to Alex Scarlatos, the congressional candidate who ran against Peter DeFazio, and he he identified as part of the sort of libertarian wing of the party. Then you've got folks at the national level like Josh Hawley um, and Tom Cotton, who are, are trying to form like a more Trump friendly populist wing of the party. And then, of course, there's the moderates um, of the party, the, the Mitt Romney wing, who obviously occupies its own sort of space. And it's a dynamic party. These sort of planks of the party didn't necessarily exist 10 years ago. So I'm curious, where do you see yourself fitting into that dynamic of the 2020s era post-Trump Republican Party? I think when people, when you're talking about the federal figures, you know, people at the national level, they come at it from a different angle. And that's why you see such a, a you know, you might see it in the national news of somebody's moving to extremely to the right, somebody staying moderate. You know, you're talking about years of experience that some of these representatives have. So their view is going to be a little bit different than mine. But when I see myself as the post-Trump Republican, what that means to me, I think it is that it affects my family. So when anytime you start to see lots of rules and regulations, you might see an Alex Scarlatos who says, I'm more of a libertarian, right? I want hands off. I want freedom to say and do what I think is best for me and my family and moving forward and then translate that into my local community and onto, you know, my state or, you know, what is happening. And I spent, you know, eight years as the mayor of Happy Valley. And when I think about those values that I wanted to work within my community, they came from the approach of not the Republican Party or not the Democratic Party, right? They were nonpartisan. But as I continued down the road of the state representative and running for that, I thought to myself, you know, you do have to be aligned with certain values. And so as the post-Trump, I still find myself in that conservative side, the conservative 
faction of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And the common sense still applies as it applies to my family. But when you start to see the regulations and the rules coming out of D.C. that they're going to, where they're going to be more restrictive instead of less, you tend to stay with the conservative side and say, we have to battle that and use the common sense approach. So I still find myself in the conservative part. I'm not uh, moderate, yes, and maybe some views, um, but I'm not liking what I'm seeing as far as all of um, the thumbs on approach from what we're going to see in D.C. and even at our own state level. I'm shocked to hear that you are not ready to endorse Joe Biden's reelection on our podcast. But uh... <laughs> that was supposed to be our big newsmaker. <laughs> if you if you if I'd have been on three weeks from now, hey, I might have changed my mind. Right. What I don't like is, is seeing a lot of the flip flopping that you are seeing. I think people get scared and they're like, where do I fit? And then they make these jumps. And so. You know, we don't make decisions like that. I don't think you guys make decisions like that. I don't expect people to just jump on a different bandwagon. But again, everybody's approach is different when they have their experiences that are different. So uh, people are positioning, I feel like right now in these, you know, three weeks that the new administration has been in. So Lori, it's really interesting that you talk about that specifically in terms of people who have dramatically changed their views and their positions on things. And Uh, I want to point to a recent piece of news that you probably just saw that was, I don't know if it was first reported by the New York Times, but it obviously made its way to the national level since the New York Times is talking about it, even in little old Oregon. But Newt Bueller, who was the Republican candidate for governor in 2018, and some people rumored to say uh, a rival for you potentially uh, in that race, as I know that your name was, was definitely thrown around there through the primary process. But Newt basically just said uh, earlier that he's leaving the Republican Party. He's no longer a member of the Republican Party. And I think it's really interesting. One, I I sort of want your reaction to that, just general thoughts. I mean, he, of course, was the Oregon GOP standard bearer for 2018. But second, I think what's really interesting about Newt is, you know, and what you said about changing views is Newt ran for governor basically as this like very moderate guy, right? He says, you know, I'm pro-choice, uh, I have all these socially liberal positions on LGBTQ issues. I believe he came out for some sort of version of Medicare for all at some point. Definitely more of the, I would say, liberal wing of the Republican Party. I don't even really know if I'd call it moderate. But then, of course, he ran for Congress uh, in 2020 in a primary that he lost. And he basically did a big hug of Trump saying, I'm the biggest Trump guy. I want to build the wall. We need to stop these crazy liberals in D.C. and these Salem Sanders Democrats, which is something he said before. And now he's leaving the party basically based off of actions that he said were uh, done by President Trump. So I'm curious, what's your initial reaction to that? Uh, and, and what do you think is next for Newt, maybe? Yeah, Newt and I have been friends for several years. Newt, so, you know, I enjoy Newt. I, I, I love his family. I think that he has committed, obviously, service and time. But obviously, he's also in the public eye, right? People are paying attention to what's going on in Oregon. They knew that he ran for Secretary of State in 2000, and I think it was 12. And again, then he was successful in his state rep run. He represented his district. You know, he was reelected several times. So people thought you know, he's doing what's best for his community. And then as he ran for, for governor, and yes, that was something we were thinking about and spent some time together at the RGA and talking about that. And he was going to be the you know, the GOP representative for all of us, supposedly. And so that's where, you know, you go, hey, what what happened? It isn't because he didn't question, you know, gosh, does Trump fit what I'm saying? Did the party leave me or did I leave the party, right? That's kind of what you hear people say, I'm so tired of it, I have to just run away. Mm-hmm. But if we all ran away from, from our convictions and our values, every time things got a little heated in the kitchen, we'd have a mess on our hands, I would is how I look at it. But clearly he must have discussed this with his family and, and thought this is the best move. But again, then running for, for Congress to jump on board, I, see, I think people start to see through that and wonder what's the ultimate plan. I haven't talked to Newt. I don't know what his goals are. So I was a little surprised that uh, he made that announcement so publicly and why he's now making the circuit. So maybe there's a backstory that I'm not familiar with, but well, so yeah, I, think- I, I would say I was a little surprised. One of the things that's interesting about this to me is like, I think Newt, I would love to talk to Newt about this, but I think what Newt might say is that the Republican Party in the Trump era and and today is not actually the Republican Party of when he started his Oregon political career and, and ran as a state legislative um, candidate for 
for office. And obviously that doesn't sort of excuse the, the, the congressional primary version of Newt that was much more conservative than the statewide version of Newt. But so I, I, want, I wanted to ask you about that because you are sort of in this odd position where you, start, you started as mayor before any of us dreamed that Trump would be a national political figure. And the Republican Party was, as you alluded to, is about fewer regulations, fiscal conservatism, traditional values, et cetera. And in the last four years, it has shifted to be a much more sort of economic populist. Well, I don't even know if the party has, but Trump was talking about economic populism. He was much more neutral on social issues and really uh, kind of nationalistic. And so it, I was thinking about your answer and you, what you cited as what drew you to the Republican Party was the sort of pre-Trump stuff. It wasn't the hardline immigration um, stance. It wasn't the sort of America first attitude. So how, how do you, you know, and you, I also saw that you were a, a delegate for Trump at the 2020 convention, which signals some sort of agreement or alignment with Trump's version of um, public policy. So um in terms of you as a Republican leader in the state of Oregon and someone who folks are regularly talking about for higher office, where do you come down on the Trump issue? I mean, is he someone that you can stand behind and support and say was a great president or, or are you align with Newt at all in thinking that, that Trump was a disaster for the party? <laughs> and, and there's the extreme, great versus disaster, <laughs> right, right? right? That's the question that, that, that we get asked. It's like, and if you don't fall in line with one of those, then you're, you know, all of the, the names that, that we can be called in the Republican Party versus, ah, they finally figured out that if they're in line with us, then, they're, then they've got it figured out. And, th and that's really not the case because if, you're, if you wanna talk about policy or if you wanna talk about you know, demeanor or if you wanna talk about, th those are two different things that we judge people on, right? Character and demeanor and how they treat people. We all know that we treat people as we wanna be treated. We don't wanna be, you know, disrespectful, why would you ever want to hurt any fellow American, right? That only makes sense to, to an intelligent, not, you know, common sense human being. But if you're talking about policy, that's where kind of I fell in, in line with that. And I often thought about friends of mine who would say, how could you even, you know, listen to him? I can't even stand to listen to him talk, right? And I would think, okay, well, first of all, it's very rare that many of us are going to sit in one room with the president of the United States and have to listen to him and talk. So then it became, well, but he's our leader and he should be better. Okay. Yeah, he's our leader of, of the free world. He's our president. But what do the policies say and how are those going to trickle into my family life? And when I think about that, I, I correlate that with being the mayor, right? I, I wasn't going to agree with, with everybody in Happy Valley. And all I wanted for the citizens of Happy Valley were, were what I wanted for my family, which was safety and security, that my kids would be raised in a, in a well-adjusted community where they could be educated and in the classroom, and that I could make a living with my family to support the family that I chose to create. That's kind of how I, I lumped it over all the way to the state level. It's how I also think of it at the federal level. So when he's doing making policies, that will trickle down to where I can make better decisions, that's kind of where I fall in line. So I don't need to leave the party to, I don't wanna be so dependent on the government that I have to align with everything in each party, but I'm certainly not gonna run away and say, I don't, I, don't, I don't need to be affiliated at all because those policies will affect me. I see them here in Oregon, right? When I see policies come out of the, gov uh, the governor's administration, I think, oh my gosh, what's next? And I start to apply that you know, to my household and how that's gonna affect me. So, and now we have a change in, in you know, four years, we, we're, we're completely opposite of what I had aligned with how I'm running my household. And now what am I doing? Making some adjustments for my home, making adjustments for my business, you know, making decisions that affect our employees based on the new policies. But I can't be so aligned with, with everything and be so counting on the government that they're gonna direct my life um, and that that takes me into that conservative, little less government, less regulation, and keeps me there. Hmm. Yeah, so that's uh, yeah, that's, that's that's interesting, Lori. And I'm I'm actually curious of, I'm sure that you had many constituents who would disagree with your point of view there, because I mean, I I know there's a lot of Republicans who basically thought that way about the president. They thought, well, I don't like the rhetoric he says sometimes, but I love the policies that are coming out. 
Uh, and you would hear from a lot of folks is, wow, you're really going to sacrifice this. You know, this is basically their counterpoint is you're really going to sacrifice this moral leadership that we have and how this man acts basically to have lower taxes. I'm curious, what, what was the sort of, and it, it's funny to me even, and that's of course part of the thesis of our podcast actually is that national trends in politics have basically overtaken local issues is how many times, you know, when you either ran for, for state representative or when you ran for mayor and stuff like that, did the sort of Trump issue come up? Like, was there actually local issues that you felt like people really cared about you having to address and that's how you could different yourself from your opponent? Or do you really think that you were bogged down because your opponent just kept saying, oh, well, this person stands with Donald Trump. They're a crazy conservative. Don't vote for them. We have to vote for a progressive candidate. Uh, I'm curious of what you thought, you know, as, as a mayor and someone who ran for local offices, how much were you dealing with the national issues versus the local ones? And for our, for our listeners, Lori ran for state representative in 2016 when Trump was first on the ballot and in 2018 when it was the Trump midterms and Trump was the sort of issue. So that's a, that's a great question, Alex. Then I'm going to answer that question um, as, as it relates to the economy. But just quickly, when we're talking about the character, again, you mentioned that maybe some of my constituents might have said, gosh, I just can't believe that moral character doesn't weigh on you. But if I think back about, you know, Bill Clinton, what would I have answered to that, right? You can't, I mean, look, look at what other presidents have and have not done as far as their character goes. And, you know, he was the be all end all and everybody, and then his, you know, his, his wife soon followed and People wanted to forget all that. So again, you kind of have to say, you know, are the presidents going to be in my living room talking to my kids? Because if they, my children see this, and if my grandkids eventually see this, gosh, how will I just, how will I answer that? Well, here's where the priority lies: is that I'm the leader of my family with my husband and I, and we're going to talk to our children and our grandkids about saying, here's what you need to, the noise that you need to get rid of, and here's why you need to just pay attention, work hard, don't watch just one social media and one channel, see what's going on in the world and how it affects you, put your head down, work hard, because we're gonna go through presidents every four years. That's how this country works and we're gonna have to adjust. So I didn't get bogged down in what he said and you know the little things I thought, nope, I can avoid that noise and still focus on the policy. So now- it, it, It's funny, Lori, I actually, I, I like that framing a lot because uh, there's so many like consultant driven political attacks that are like, you know, I'm running against Ben Bowman. And would you really want Ben Bowman to be modeled after your family voter? Would you really want to, you know, those like little TV ads that everyone hates to see and tries to avoid as much as possible, those mail pieces. And yeah, I've always thought it was ridiculous that like, oh, should my, you know, I should be the one raising my family basically in terms of the morals that, that I want to espouse. Like, should they really be looking to their local state rep and obviously it's to a certain extent whether so they really be looking to their local state representative and being like this is who you need to be modeled off of for my children i always thought that was just kind of like a ridiculous so, I, I, so, but i i do like i think part of this is like you do hear often like i want to separate the rhetoric from the policies with trump that's the but I think because, and people said all along, like, you know, listen to what he, uh, watch what he's doing, not what he says, like what he says doesn't matter, the tweets don't matter. But then we saw on January 6th, the consequences of his loose speaking and and his, um, or, or maybe not, like, I, I think there's a lot of, we're, we're, there's an impeachment trial right now that's supposed to determine whether or not this was just loose speaking or whether this was an intentional prodding or creating or, um, trying to create a, uh, a sort of insurrection. And that it, to me, like on one side all along, you had the liberals basically saying, the progressives, the Democrats saying like, this destruction of our norms of how we speak to each other and, and treat each other matters. It's a big deal and we should pay attention to it. And you had folks on the right saying, no, follow his policies. The policies are what matter. And then we had January 6th as literally the end of the, the, Trump, the Trump experiment. And to me, that was a validation of the concerns for the last four years about, wow, words and language actually matters a lot. And, and the modeling matters a lot. And we should we should hold our elected officials to a higher standard. Like, I don't think it's a I think it's a false equivalence with Bill Clinton or um, even Richard Nixon and what Donald Trump did because he was so willful about it. You know, at least Bill Clinton had to apologize and had to atone for his mistakes and had to like go through that process. And Donald Trump shows zero remorse for anything he's ever done. Um, so I don't know, I, I struggle with the separating the rhetoric from the policy. Yeah, so so let's move on from that. But if you're talking about the the what happened on January 6th and the loose language, can you imagine, so how do you apply that 
same standard then to a Maxine Waters? How do you apply that to an AOC who says the exact thing that go out and protest, peacefully protest? And if you look at the transcript of what, what President Trump said, where did he ever say go riot and, and tear down the Capitol? Because I'm sure he didn't. So it was an inferred language that people took upon themselves. So there's some self-responsibility there for those people who were wrong in what they did in breaching the Capitol and, and hurting our Capitol Police. I don't, I don't buy into that. I don't think any type of violence is ever good. But what happened here in Portland over the last year? What's still happening? What happened on the night that, uh, of the Biden inauguration when Antifa is breaking into buildings here? So where were all the leaders on the other side saying, oh, see, now, now the standard's not going to apply because they were just protesting for free, right? They were just marching because that's what they believed in, and the violence didn't really count. So we can argue that all day long on left or right about, you know, uh, you know double standards and hip hypocrisy and what, but what, how do we talk about moving forward and we're talking about policy and the economy? Because what's happening now in February of 2021? They're talking about passing more COVID relief funds and not letting people go back to work. You know, people are, are tired. People are frustrated. You're seeing the outfall of what's happening about being cooped up for, for an entire year from children all the way up to adults. People want to go back to work and make their own money, not be handed a $600 or $1,200 or $1,400 or whatever argument that we're having, then we're going to go spend $460 million on the National Guard in D.C. for 30 days. Does that make any sense to you or me on, on both sides of the aisle? So that, that, right? that's, it, it, that's interesting. So do you, so Donald Trump famously supported, the Republicans in Congress were pissed because he came out in support of $2,000 checks. Um, just, is that something you oppose? What I opposed was maybe a little more direction to those checks. I know that at the time he wanted to get some stuff done, but I don't think everybody needs those checks. Listen, I don't need $2,000. I don't think it should randomly go out to, to everybody, people who have jobs and haven't lost their jobs. Who's hurting? You know, the white collar workers are, are, are working behind the desk still working from home, but what's happening to our blue collar workers, right? What's happening to those people who can't go out and, and make a living? Do they need the 2000 or the 1400? Sure. But is it just willy nilly with all the pork that we're seeing? I don't, I don't believe so. So a little direction to the, that COVID relief and just COVID relief, I think it's something that, that they could have gotten done while Donald Trump was still the president of the United States. But again, there's politics and everything. It's, I think it's what we've seen, but I think we're seeing some wasted dollars. And right now I think people are in February of this year want to go back to work. You're hearing it from businesses. Our parents want our kids to go back to schools, right? And, and, and they need that support to do so. And we're in Oregon are keeping things closed. I, it's not making much sense to me that some states are doing fine and staying open and some aren't. And it's frustrating to see that Governor Brown hasn't really taken a lead on this. I'm frustrated by the unemployment insurance debacle that's happened there. I'm surprised by a lot of that stuff that she hasn't taken the lead. She has been a career politician, unlike Joe Biden. And you mean to tell me they can't figure certain things out? It doesn't make sense. So, Laura, that's actually a, a perfect transition because that was the next subject that I wanted to talk to you about was the situation with COVID and Orkin. Uh, and I imagine that most of the listeners are like myself, and we've been going absolutely bananas, having been stuck in our house now since, uh, what was that? March, early March of last year. So we're going on 11 months here uh, after two weeks to, to, to stop the spread, which hasn't been great. Uh, but one thing, Laura, that I'm, I'm really curious about is that it, it's, it's funny because you're seeing, for example, in, in California, and I'll just give a little bit of context for our viewers, is that uh, there's a lot of Democrats in the state of California right now that are attempting to recall their governor, Gavin Newsom. Uh, that's been a pretty big story that's been going on because Gavin Newsom is considered a pretty top Democratic prospect to run for president in 2024. Obviously, California is right below us, uh, where they should be, our, our wonderful state of Oregon, which is, of course, higher up than they are. Uh, but I'll, I'll digress there. But uh, Democrats are actually moving forward with recalling the governor. Uh, some of them are, not all of them. Of I was going to say, I think it's mostly Republicans, to be clear. No, there, there, there's, a, like, there's some pretty yeah. high-profile names that have come yeah. out that are supporting the, the recall movement in, in California. Like more than I, I, This has gotten a lot more national attention than I frankly thought it would. Okay. But I want to transition to a little bit about what you were talking about before earlier, and that's the Democratic 
response to COVID in Oregon. Now, the repeated thing that I have heard from Democrats basically uh, is that this is all Donald Trump's fault. The federal government did a terrible job in terms of distributing tests. They're doing a terrible job at distributing vaccines. Uh, they weren't doing a good job of sharing information with local health authorities and all those sorts of things. Uh, now, of course, we know that Republicans don't actually control anything in the state of Oregon. They don't control the Senate. They don't control the, the uh, state house and they don't control the governorship. I guess, I guess we don't really control anything. <laughs> so uh, what it like, you know, it, it, Lori, let's say we put you and you obviously have executive experience as mayor of a big growing city. Like, let's say we put you basically in charge of the governorship. Like, what do you think the Republican vision for uh, battling COVID looks like in Oregon or what should it look like? Well, I think that the priorities and, and they're going to be the same priorities that I was mentioning when I was mayor, right? What are the focuses? Public health, public safety, education, right? For your families and to be able to earn an income, right? Those are always the top things that come about. So how do we preserve that and keep people safe? So once the vaccine, which was, and I, I don't want to use the word rush through because I don't want people to, to say that the, the, the creation of the vaccine was not tested and all that. But now we know it is, we know now that, but I'm saying quicker on a, on a route to each state came fairly quickly under President Trump. I, th I think we can all agree that it got through much faster. Yeah, Operation so Warp Speed was a, was a great success for sure. Was a great success. So now, you know, it's in the hands of each governor. And, and, and I think you heard it from uh, Governor Cuomo and you heard it from several governors across um, the nation of, listen, we'll take care of our state, right? We're, we want to be in charge. We don't want you to mandate this. But when it push came to shove, guess what they wanted? Well, now it's Donald Trump's fault that he didn't get it to us in time. Well, when we got the distribution of the vaccines in Oregon, right, we were, we, were, we were one of the last states in the nation to be able to have the vaccine administered. And I kept thinking to myself, because I asked my question, just, if I'm sitting in my own couch, what questions come to mind? And the first things that came to my mind were, why aren't we using our National Guard to get this out quicker than later, right? I didn't understand. That's what that's when there's a time of crisis, our National Guard is called to the scene, right? Whether it be a flood, fires, you know, evacuations of some sort, why aren't we using it? And we held off and we held off and I couldn't understand, you know, why we were doing so. And then the conversation came about, well, it was storage and where were we going to have them and, you know, who's going to get them first? And then the tiered system came into place. And now I'm thinking we're, 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 we've done better. You know, 8%, I think, of uh, the population has been served. You know, we don't have a big state. We should be able to get these vaccines to the people. Well, my father and my mother are 70, you know, 4 and 76. And because my mom is still working and in healthcare field, she got hers, but my dad's still sitting here waiting. And I'm thinking, well, where's those, you know, what about the seniors that we always cared about? Why aren't we protecting them? And we're missing the boat on that. So there's lots of things that just, come to mind. And as far as the vaccine, then we're talking about, you know, about work. You've got your local mayor is going to meet with, with the governor on Monday about how this is affecting their cities. 241 cities in Oregon. Most of, most of them are less than 5,000 people. So you can imagine what their oh, cry wow. out is going to be, right? Their cry out is going to be, I would, I need to put my people back to work, right? People are hurting. I have seniors. We're in remote areas. We know that, that Eastern Oregon and Southern Oregon, you know, there's a lot of remote places. Why aren't we getting the vaccines to the retirement facilities? Why aren't we getting the vaccines to hospitals? My husband's a physician. We employ 150 people. We have nurses. We have nurse anesthetists that work for us. Why isn't there a way to get these vaccines to our offices and let us even vaccinate our own employees? But nope, we got to go, you know, down to the convention center. We can't do it. We're, we're missing some connections, I think, throughout that, that we, that we could, could change there. We're not using all of our resources. So those happen. And again, those mayors are going to be frustrated. And you've seen some of the political stunts by some of these local mayors about, you know, the governor is not doing it right. I, I would have to say, if I was still the mayor, I would be wanting to hear from her directly. And I have a feeling on Monday, you're not going to hear from her. I think that the schedule is going to be from the OHA to do a presentation as to how we're doing better and, and then ask a few medical questions. But 
you know, we're missing the beat. City halls are closed across the state still. Why is that? Why is City Hall closed in Happy Valley? I'm not the mayor. I ask that myself. I'm like, why are you closed? Why can't you see people? If I can go to the grocery store and if I can go to the bank and if I can go, you know, to work out in my gym finally, why can't I go to City Hall and, and do the business that needs to be done to keep the economy going and keep building going? Those questions are just not making sense to me. So I'm anxious to hear how it's going to progress, but I think we've missed the boat on some major things. Yeah, so so Ben, I want to bring you in here too as a member of of the school board. And I mean, I know that's been that's actually been one of the major issues that's affecting Governor Newsom is opening the schools. And I know that's also been a particular issue here well, that a lot child, of folks have. His children, are, his children are in private school, so why should he make that decision? <laughs> I guess yeah, it would be good to be in private school. Uh, but yeah, of course, most of our kids don't have that option. Uh, so Ben, I'm just curious. I mean, I, I'm assuming that you, you know, you want students to be able to get back in school. I mean, it's an issue that, you know, a lot of parents are very worried about. Uh, what's sort of your report card in terms of what Governor Brown has been doing? Uh, you know, what, like, what, what do you think or sort what's the progressive angle here for basically next steps on sort of getting things back to normal? Well, I do. I, th I do think this is an interesting issue because this um, you definitely hear Democrats on the left who are concerned about the direction. And you also hear because it's definitely going to hurt, especially poor kids, too. Right. I imagine. Like, also, I mean, I had friends who worked for, you know, Teach for America where they had kids who, you know, they don't even have computers or Internet at home. Like, how are they supposed to do virtual learning for a year? So, yeah. So, yeah. I imagine that a lot of progressives are very concerned about this also. There's a there's a ton to unpack here. Um so first of all, the governor of Oregon has made a different policy choice than the governor of other states in terms of vaccinating teachers first with the hopes of jumpstarting getting students back to school. That's something that like senior groups, for example, have been opposed to, but others have been supportive of. What I think is important and often lost in the conversation is that the governor the governor has has definitely has executive authority and, and broad authority in a state of emergency, but reopening decisions right now are being made locally. And teachers have, um, in the state of Oregon, and I think rightfully so, have very serious workplace protections that give them a voice in what reopening looks like and what safety measures are in place and, and how that all works. So I think like- But the safety measures are in place. It's the teachers union that's gonna battle to get paid, get the shot, and not show up to work. Does that make any sense to anybody? Look what's happening in I Chicago. I don't think I don't think that's what I I don't see that happening here. I, I I genuinely don't. What I hear from teachers is we want to have both vaccines so that when we're in the classroom, we are safe. Just like just like we're prioritizing frontline workers. Like if if teachers are going to be in a classroom with a bunch of students who we know are petri dishes and very good at spreading diseases, it makes sense that we would provide that level of protection. But I want before we. The other piece of this is like, because we keep talking about like historically underserved students, students of color, low income students. Yes, it's absolutely a challenge for many of those students now. Um, a, you've got a lot of districts, like including the Tiger Twalden School District, who's one to one district. So we have um, we have both hotspots and laptops or Chromebooks available for all of our students. And I think that should be expanded. Sorry, Ben, what is a one to one district? One to one district just means um, each student has um, one device. So Chromebook, iPad, whatever it may be. The challenge is we also know that those same demographics are most impacted by COVID and least likely to be accessing the vaccine. So the rush to reopen, the rush to get back to school is also gonna disproportionately harm those communities in terms of COVID deaths and COVID hospitalizations, unless we put up, unless we're very serious and intentional about equity and distribution of the vaccine. So it's, 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 it's not as simple, I think, as we need to reopen now because that's what's in the best interest of those students. It's like, how can we design a system that is really thoughtful and really intentional about using the resources we have available to us? Mm -hmm. And so you're talking about the Portland, Portland you, you referenced the Tualatin School District and mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about um, uh, children of color and poor. What, the state of Oregon is very unique in the fact that that's the Portland metro area, right? That mm -hmm. you just described uh, uh, pockets of it. Sure. But we have a lot of rural areas that are, don't have a lot of people of color, if that's, they don't fall into that, but they're still very poor. They're still missing the, the um, like Alex mentioned, the, the internet, right? And that's been a conversation among mayors for a long time about how we have, um, how can we connect those communities so that we get the information out, uh, you know, provide for them. So 
that hasn't been addressed at all that where they fall into, right? So you've got these very rural communities, again, 5,000 or less in a lot of these cities. I mean, Happy Valley has 24,000 people and we're ranked number 35th in size out of 241 cities. So think of all these small communities throughout the entire state that are just being you know, somewhat left behind because we're not falling into the people of color. Um, and I know they're not population centers, but we can't forget all of Oregon. It can't just always be Portland centric. And I get that that's where the population is um, in some of these communities. And you know, the Hispanic community, and I am half Mexican, has been greatly affected as well. And they fall into the people of color, right? Into the farm communities and that, and that services. And you know, they, they live in, in, in communities that are close in quarters. They're sometimes afraid of of government regulation they're not you know super trustworthy and so they have to decide you know who to believe and who not to believe and they tend not to want to go into you know the hospital or get a vaccine or you know they're really unsure yeah. about all that so i don't think that that's something that that either side of us disagree on yes about who's impacted the most it's just why are we waiting to study it? I get so tired of the blue committee and the red committee and the yellow committee and the green committee about, oh, we have to study this. Let's just get the vaccine out, open these lines up and let everybody go get the shot and start the herd immunity, you know, in, in question, not, well, who's first, who's second, who's last, because that's where the divide continues. We keep pitting one group against the other. Um, and that's no different when you talk about the big scope of, I know COVID's at the forefront, but when you're even talking about basic stuff, transportation, moving around, mayors will fight each other when we're all in the same camp for the one pot of dollars um, because that's what we do. We pit, here's one pot, who's gonna get it the most and who always gets it the most as we always say, well, Portland's going to. Well, that's the population center. Yeah, you just forget about everybody else. We're all well, still paying taxes. So it, it can be kind of crazy, but it shouldn't be unsolvable. That's where I get frustrated when you're sitting at a table and if I was sitting at the table on Monday with Governor Brown you can't just always forget about everybody else put people in charge who can get it done everywhere every you know community is a little bit different we don't all have to be the same and treated the same and that's where I think a lot of leaders fall off is that it's not a one-size-fits-all everywhere no I, I think that's I think that's right I don't, I don't necessarily agree on the sort of open the floodgates on vaccines because the supply is so limited and we're not, we need to be getting a quicker supply from the federal government. But in terms of the internet access, that is like, so one of our, our questions or things that we're exploring on the podcast is like, you know, how do we create a more productive political culture in Oregon? How do you solve the urban rural divide that is like obviously very pervasive in our politics? I think like something like rural internet connectivity and closing the digital divide is something that like you're going to have folks on the right whose constituents are going to benefit from it and you're going to have folks on the left who are absolutely willing to spend government resources to create that level of infrastructure and i i keep waiting who, who in oregon who's going to be the person on the right who's going to be on the person on the left to come together with a proposal that's funded that can deliver but like i i think you're right why why shouldn't that be happening in oregon yeah, and it is happening. I don't want you to think it isn't. There's been lots of conversation. It just you probably don't hear it as much in the like I said in the population centers in in the Portland metro area because we have pretty you know good cable system and access to the internet and all and all the goes with it the infrastructure for it. It's you don't hear about that until you meet with mayors that are in very rural areas. We're like, how do I, how do I even get this to my community? Right? It's so expensive. It's such a big task to take on. And I'll tell you who you should make that focus to is these businesses, right? Give these businesses who are the best at their R&D, I often used to say, government can't figure out anything like this. We're not, we're not good at it. It's not what government should do. It's what, it's what businesses should take care of. Give these businesses an incentive to solve the problem. You know, I'm gonna give you your tax free for one year if you go, put me, go give me internet somewhere in the rural area and tell me how that gets done. But we can't seem to do that because we don't wanna let go of the authority that we know better and we're gonna pick who's who's in line for the vaccine. We don't want to open the floodgates because we want to decide who's more important, right? Well, I th no, we I think it's, beca it's because question. it's because there's only so many vaccines and if we just open the floodgates, the sure. logistical nightmare, like we don't have What's enough to vaccinate every, we don't have enough vaccines to vaccinate everybody who wants one yet. Right, but you have enough, but you have enough vaccinations to vaccinate who you decide who needs one. What's the difference? 
Well, that's what every many people get vaccinated. Even Republicans, but even Republican governors are having to choose who falls into the one A category, who falls into the one B. Like I don't think any state has just said anybody who wants a vaccine can just show up and get it. Well, there has been there has been some states and some communities like come on up, come on over. I don't quote me on saying who that is because I don't know. I just read the articles that I have. I couldn't tell you who that is. But my point being is that there are lots of vaccines sitting and some are being wasted because we can't get in people to come get them because we're not having the information out because we don't have anybody to administer them. And again, that administrative part is where people were frustrated, like, oh, we have the vaccine, but we don't have anybody to give them. Why? Mm -hmm. Because they limited about who they're going to allow to give them. So again, somebody like our company who could a doctor's office, why aren't they having all these doctor's offices say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and administer these to in my entire staff. And I'm going to open my clinic on a this day or that day and sign them out. We all have, my husband's registered in the state of Oregon and then the feds to say, I can sign for this. I could have my staff administer this and report back to you. And who could, But they're not doing that. Nope. Go to the hospital. We want to have super control, but there can be a different way. And, and they're not, they're not doing that. There's nurses who go to these retirement homes who give them injections for everything else. Let's go ahead and release. There's, you know, you know, 68 yeah. People, residents living right down the street at this retirement home, why aren't they issuing them to them and just giving them to them right now? What's happening? Oh, because they're not in line or no, you can't do it right. Or we would lose control of it. I'm thinking we're missing the boat. Definitely, definitely lots to talk about. We could have a whole episode on COVID and maybe we will sometime. Um, But I want to, I want to actually, you mentioned that, I think you said your dad is Mexican and you're half Mexican. Um, Mm -hmm. I I wanted to ask- Okay, mom's Irish. So, oh, that's that's a fascinating combination. Yeah, so, <laughs> right. You should You're, see you should see that argument happen in the house. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, your 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 former opponent for the state um, state representative seat, um, Janelle Bynum, briefly challenged Speaker Kotek to be Speaker of the Oregon House. Um, and one mm-hmm. of the issues that she cited was the lack of diversity in Oregon's history of um, legislative leadership positions. She would have been the first Black woman to be Speaker of the Oregon House. Um, and I was wondering what you made of that argument for her speakership. Uh, and she made other arguments, of course, but um, and, and maybe from within your own house of the GOP, do you think it's a it's a problem that the GOP is predominantly white in terms of elected officials? Not all white, but predominantly white. Um, from your perspective as a person of color, um, a what do you think of of Representative Bynum's argument about diversity and representation being important? And b how do you think that applies to the Republican Party? Sure. Well, I mean, if we go back to Janelle Bynum in her run against me. Now, I, I was the mayor, first woman, first Hispanic mayor of Happy Valley. I was only the fifth mayor, but before me, there were four white men who, who were the mayor before I was. And so I thought that was you know, important to recognize. There's not a lot of, there's not a big Hispanic population in Happy Valley. So when we talk about, you know, I, we have to represent who we look like and who we relate to. I, I understand that, right? I mean, communities relate to other communities. That, that doesn't make, doesn't shock you or me. If I'm a woman and I'm talking to other women, we have relatability issues. But just because I'm a woman or just because I'm Hispanic doesn't mean I can't relate to a man or can't relate to a different ethnic group, right? So we have a big population, of, a big uh, Slavic population. We have a big uh, Asian population. I, I, I can relate to other people, maybe on different avenues. So Ms. Bynum came into, uh, I originally had filed in 2016 against Shamia Fagan. Mm. And... She was a woman, she was white or whatever her nationality is. I'm, I'm not sure exactly where her, her ethnicity is, but um, I didn't run against her because I thought I need to show that I am a Hispanic woman and gonna be relatable. I was, didn't like the policies that she was running against. So representing perhaps about, so that's why I ran. When she dropped out on the filing deadline and, and Janelle Bynum filed, um, I thought, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why I knew I knew Janelle in previous occasions, and I thought that was surprising. But she's a Democrat; I'm a Republican, so she clearly ran against me because she maybe she thought she could do better or carry the values of the Democratic Party. But the actual race ended up being very much, you know, one-sided about 
uh, you know, that she needed to represent people of color and she needed to represent, and I'm thinking, well, I was a person of color, but it didn't matter because I was a Republican person of color. So, so Lori, that's actually, that. it's actually really interesting. Uh, I, I'm always curious when, you know, so what is the actual breakdown of, of Happy Valley? Like, is there like a, because I, I definitely understand that the point of view, right? When someone is like, you know, when AOC, for example, says, oh yeah, well, you know, this district is 60% Hispanic, so we should have someone who's Hispanic that represents them. And I think, okay, that sort of makes sense. And maybe there's even some gaps there that like maybe the district has a majority of people who are Spanish speakers. So like maybe it makes sense to have a representative of, you know, folks who, who actually who actually spe speaks the language and relates to the culture of people. Like that's not crazy to me at all as a Republican or as a conservative. But I'm curious of like what... Sure. I just find it strange that someone like unless Happy Valley has a huge POC population, then maybe it makes sense. But it seems strange to me that someone would make that a primary theme of their campaign. Right. Like what's the sort of breakdown right. there? Like, why do you think that she did that? Yeah. And the, and the, the Happy Valley population group, I think it was, you know, just over 1% for Hispanic and black. So but I, I want you to recognize that the district obviously wasn't just Happy Valley. So, so mm -hmm. as mayor, yes, he was running for mayor. But as 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 a district, it was a little bit different, right? So it was part of Happy Valley, Damascus, and then into the Portland sector. So that that percentage has definitely changed. But even so, the argument wasn't well. For it was just. It was, I'm a, if, if you want diversity in, in the Republican Party, and I heard this argument just actually a few weeks ago, like what is wrong with the Republican Party that there's no diversity? Well, guess what? If I were diverse, I'm a woman, I'm a Republican and I'm Hispanic. They did everything they could to not have me rise up in the Republican Party because, right? Because I have, I'm relatable, have good values, can talk, and can can relate to people and make good policy, but I was too much of a threat to the Democratic side. So they had to take me out at all costs. Spend 1.2 million. Janelle had never run for anything before, ever, but they knew that I would win that seat, and they had to throw 1.2 million and trash a record and trash me to say that I wasn't representative enough. Now, had they we did that to a woman Democrat, man, we'd be racist misogynist, right? We'd be all of the above. So I get very frustrated with that. But that being said, do we need to represent and be diverse in the GOP? Sure. Are we seeing that more and more? Sure. Should that be the only thing that we look at? No. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that for education for my kids. I wouldn't do that for a workplace. I, we need to have diversity, yes, but we also have to be able to do the job fairly and with integrity and you know, I think that that's missing. And they, from the Democratic side, they'll do it. They'll win at all costs. And and I, and I was very frustrated in my races. But moving forward, I think the GOP can definitely continue to move forward. We saw, look, record women were elected across the nation. That that's that's a change, right? Mm -hmm. That's a change in who we are. What I, you know, the Shamia Fagans of the world who just became Secretary of State from Happy Valley. She's a white woman. She's white. Right, she's raising a son who's white. What's he gonna look like? What What's gonna happen to him? What's gonna happen to white men who are coming up? Are they, I, I, are they have no place in politics anymore? I think that's an unfair thing to do and or say. And it, and I don't want to see that that move forward in ten years where where white men can't do anything. I still, I mean, I it's still, unfair. I still think white men are the the most represented figures in Oregon politics across all levels. Um, so, and I, as a white man, I'm not fearful about, <laughs> even as a Democrat, I'm not fearful about me not having a place. I think, so this, I get, so, and I can't speak for Representative Bynum, but I, my, what I understood of her argument was basically like, it matters. First of all, I think she's the only black woman in the legislature. And to Alex, to your point, how many Oregon legislative districts would be majority African-American? I don't think any, um, because our population is so small. In fact, I think we might even. Well, no, 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 no. My, that that wasn't my point. My my broader point was asking why she felt that to make that and basically a necessity of her campaign, have having that be one of the main messages. So and so this is what I think the message actually is: is like it matters that not just black people 
see a black person in leadership, but all people. And I think Representative Bynum spoke specifically about young people and children and students, like seeing a, a, a elected body in the state legislature that is representative of the people has symbolic significance that actually matters in terms of what kids and students see as their potential and see what they could do. Representative Bynum is the well, only- they saw, they saw Senator Winters for years. They see Lou Frederick sure. is, is in the legislature. And so that's great. My point is, yeah, it, of course it's great. Why wouldn't it be great? Why, why wouldn't it be great? No, and but, I think that's that's what well, the representative was saying was, you know, this this kind of representation but, and diversity is um, shows how strong we are as a state. And it shows um, it shows that anybody in the state can get elected to an office, regardless of what I think that that was the symbolic significance she was trying to show. And that's what she was trying to say in her speakership um, campaign. But that's symbolic. That, that's symbolic. So what is holding anybody back from running from office? Do you think now, first of all, let's address the fact that that Oregon is primarily a white state, right? So we're going to really talk about history and think about, you know, when land ownership in Oregon, you, you couldn't own any land if you were black until 1968, something like that, 69, right? That's shameful in my mind, right? When I think about that as a human being, I think, what? That is, it's ridiculous. This should not have happened. But looking back on that, we're, we're making... We're, we're, we're being progressive in that point. Why isn't it that any Black American and Black Oregonian can't run for office? There's no, there's, what's the barrier? Somebody's going to say, well, education or, oh, no. Well, they, they can't afford it because we don't pay, pay enough for doing so. Okay, I, you know, all those little things might come up. But is there a barrier for any Black or person of color in Oregon from running for office that you've seen? And what is the only barrier that they just don't see anybody else that's done that? Because- well, so let, let, let me ask you this then. I think the barrier, I think the barrier is systemic racism and racial bias from voters. Um, so now, okay, so it's gonna, see this is what I was hoping that you would get to, the systemic racism part is. The, the, this is the answer because the actual barrier is just, you're saying people wouldn't want them there then how are they there well Why so you get elected no 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 I, I obviously not all voters and i don't think a majority of voters are are racist but we we know that we we see it in oregon like you you see you've seen the protests and see it everywhere yeah absolutely absolutely and i think that that is me when i ran for office I did not have to ever wonder if me being white was going to hurt my ability to get elected from voters. But you, I, I bet you have had conversations and I know I can only imagine the conversations that Representative Bynum had about what role her race would play in how she would be perceived by voters, how campaigns she'd run against would, would um, target her. So, I mean, do, there's, some, there's gotta be some validity there. I mean, uh, do you not, do you not and see- she was and she was elected and has been reelected. Mm -hmm. Now, why do you suppose that she wanted to be the speaker? In you know, was she been there six years, five years? Why, why do you, why did she, why did you think she thought that being the speaker was her next step, and that she should get the support of her colleagues just because she was a person of color? Why, why do you think that she thought that that was? I, I definitely the can't. Avenue it seems Speaker like Kotek wasn't worthy of her leadership. Why? She, she's been under, she's been, Speaker Kotek has supported, um, you know, obviously they pick and choose who they want to. They have a war room. They knew that, that Shamia wasn't going to run and move. And they knew that they had to pick Janelle and they placed them where they want to place them. She followed that all along the way. And then all of a sudden she decided that she has, she wants to be the speaker and she should have that just because she needs to represent it for everybody else who's watching her on her, you know, to be the leader of Oregon uh, House. Why? And she didn't get the support, so she backed off. It's interesting. Um, she, you know, she there's some there's like a Willamette Week article where they talked about. Um, she she talked about why she was running and why she was interested in. It. What I thought was interesting about it was that. She actually is one of the more fiscally moderate Democrats in the in the whole caucus. Um, she's very progressive. Except her voting record, her voting record doesn't show that. That's just her rhetoric. Compared to her caucus, compared to her caucus, maybe not to the Republicans, but she definitely has has not been with the caucus on some key votes that is that have angered the left of the caucus. I can tell you that. Um, so that's why I thought it was interesting that there was a crossover appeal 
Um, it obviously wasn't enough voters, but there are not enough representatives, but the BIPOC caucus and the moderate caucus, members of both came together to support her. Obviously there's more, um, more traditionally progressive or suburban Democrats who wanted to keep the speaker. But um, Titus, I think we've got time for maybe one or, or, or one and a half more questions. So do you wanna to transition to your next one? Yeah, Lori, thanks for, and yeah, this has been, uh, honestly, this has been really fun. It's even just fun listening to you two go back and forth. Uh, so we'll, we'll definitely have to have to do this again. We'll, we'll have you I back, think. Mayor Chavez Reamer. Yeah, we'll have to, I'll have to ha have you back, Lori. Uh, but Lori, so uh, I, I've been hearing these rumors, of course, I, I have to protect my sources, so I can't tell you where I've been hearing them from, but, uh, but many, many people, I can tell you, uh, have been potentially floating your name uh, as someone who may run for governor in 2022, and also someone who may run if Oregon gets a new congressional seat. Now, you may try to give me a political answer, and, th and that's okay, because we're going to press you on that, because that's what we do on the Oregon Bridge. We, we don't let anyone give us politician answers. Uh, my, I'm curious, Lori, uh, if, if you are even considering running, or if you're not, uh, what who is someone else that you would want to see run? And if, if you're deciding not to run, what, why not? I mean, I think that, you know, there's going to be major backlash at the polls for Republican candidates again, or sorry, against Democrats come 2022, because that's generally what happens when the other party wins office. Uh, Kate Brown will finally be stepping down. There's a bunch of people who are going to have a really nasty primary, I think, on the Democratic side of things, because a lot of people are going to try to step up to take that spot. It's not like there's any clear front runner. So uh, two questions there for you. Basically, are you considering running for governor in 2022? Uh, and then if not, uh, who would you want to, you know, who would you want to step up? And then who do you think that person would want to run against? Well, I don't like to give political answers either, because I think it's unfair <laughs> to your listeners. To be honest with you. I, I really don't like political answers. I think people should just speak from the heart and speak from the mind and, and let the, let things fall where they may. When I made the decision to run for state rep, they were never easy decisions, but I did believe that it was just a, a natural pathway to continue to fight for the people of Happy Valley, right? I mean, that was kind of, wait a minute, I've been working a long time in Happy Valley, and I really am, I felt like every time I went to the state to ask for something or to say, hey, well, I need your support here, that, that the hand-holding, you know, stopped, you know, it was like, God, who, who's fighting for us? And so that's why I was like, I just need to take that final step sometimes, speaking from a small city at a large table in the Portland metro area. So that's kind of why I was at that point and I wasn't liking the decision. When I considered um, the possibility of running for governor in 2018, you know, I had just come off the 2016 loss and you kind of think, gosh, you know, you lose one and what are, what are the voters gonna be thinking and how can I reconnect with them? So now if I'm being honest, you know, I got two losses under my belt. And I think why, you know, what is that? Where's the disconnect? What is missing? Um, Governor Brown, I think has been one of the worst leaders that I think Oregon has seen. And I've been here 20 years. I know I'm not a life, lifelong Oregonian, but I've been here 20 years to see enough of where people have felt frustrated, right? And, and they want change. So now she's gonna be gone. And, you, and like you've mentioned, we're going to have a whole host on the left, and I'm sure you're going to see boys, you know, names of Shamia Fagans, and, and, and they're going to decide to run, and maybe a Janelle Bynum's going to decide to run. Um, I haven't really thought I, I would run, but I, I don't rule anything out as things go. You just have to be patient. You know, you have to kind of see, would voters vote for me um, in an executive position, it's different than a, than a representative position on the state level, right? A mayor more is more in line with a governor who's more in line with a president than, than that. And so I want the GOP to be respected in this state. I want to see a bigger presence from the diversity side of it. I want to see a bigger movement to represent that conservative values when we go so far to the left that we have to bring some balance back to the right. So do I rule it out? Absolutely not. I have no idea what's going to happen on the congressional side with the redistricting and stuff. It's kind of, again, a wait and see, be patient. Mm -hmm. um, but I love Oregon and I've always loved Oregon since I, we chose to be here, right? I chose to be here in, in 2000 to raise my family. I thought this was a fabulous place that I would raise and it has been, and we've continued to do so. We spend the time in Arizona because it's sunny and I miss sometimes the sunshine and we go there, but I'm not moving yet. I got my ear to the ground. I've got my heart still in it because I love to serve the people. So I don't, I don't rule anything out. 
Um, and I think we need a leader who's going to listen to everybody, but we're, but you can't, uh, as we mentioned uh, earlier, you know, just being down the middle of the road doesn't really work in Oregon. The common sense works, but it, it doesn't really work. And I think you're going to need a strong leader on the GOP side to really come in and move Oregon in the direction that it, that it's been missing for a really long time. Well, when you're ready to, to break some news, uh, let us know and we'll have you back on. My, my last mini follow-up question here is, and you, you alluded to this in your answer. So I think the, the primary for the Democratic nominee for governor is going to be wild. I think you're going to see Tobias. You're going to see Tobias, who's like got the moderate, like sort of competency as state treasurer. You're going to see Shamia, who's like the rallying the progressive base, like very, you know, progressive champion. You might have Val Hoyle, who's like, you know, blue collar background and very smart political strategist, very good at this. You've got Tina Kotek, very effective speaker with a deep policy experience. Then you've got Ted Wheeler, Rukaya Adams, you've got Deb Kafori. There's like this long list. So when you think about all the Democrats, are there, are there certain candidates who you're like, wow, that would be a really hard person to run against? Or are there people you're like, I would love to run against that person because I think the contrast would be the sharpest and I would have the best chance of winning. Um, when you think about that sort of crazy primary on the left? Well, listen, I don't think you can ever be afraid of who you're going to run against or who you want to run against. It's can you carry, you know, can you carry uh, the water for the people of Oregon? I mean, it's really, can you work hard? Can you raise enough money? Can you, can you inspire the masses to say, you know what, this is who I want to lead me because of ABC. And, and again, the GOP is going to, you know, tend to come out and, and you got to inspire them to say, you know, don't give up on Oregon and you're going to get your, you know, the Democrats to say, you know, we're always going to run down the progressive side of Oregon. It's who, it's that middle of the road of who you can sway to say, you know what, I'm tired of this because you know, we're lacking in jobs and we're, we're running behind the eight ball in the rest of the country. You know, we're, we're, we want to get our kids back to school and, and all of that's going to come out in the next two years. And then it's going to be time to say, you know what, here's who I want to lead because of, of, of again, A, B, or C. And I think either uh, Lori can do it. It can't be, gosh, Lori, you should do it if you can beat uh, uh, Shamia Fagan. You should do it. Well, Ted Wheeler, he really hates it. Yeah, there's always the perfect storm and there's going to be the strategy behind running a good campaign but you know you, you just can't be afraid of your opponent you either believe in what you believe and you work hard and and i think that's why 18 was just as important to me as 16. it was painful to lose in 16 um because i had put so much time and effort but i worked twice as hard in 18 and i still lost but you can't go into it thinking yeah you know it's never going to happen so i'm not going to work hard no i believe in what i believe I want to share that value, those values and that vision with the, with Oregonians. And I'm going to work just as hard to get there and, and I'm never going to let them down. Despite winning or losing, you can't let down the people who support you. So that's kind of where I come at it. So yes, it's, it's an internal struggle to, to put in that much work. But when you go in, when I say yes to something, I give it my all. I'm ne I'll never, I'll never not. So it, it will be a decision, but if I say yes, then I would think the other person on the other side should be should be worried. Great. Well, Lori, thank you so so much again for joining us. And before we sign off, uh, where can people find you? Can they find you on Facebook? Do you have a website? Do you have a Twitter that they can follow? Uh, you know, we want folks in the audience who you know find you interesting, basically, to be able to easily find you. Sure, I will always uh, tell you where I'm at. So. Uh... <laughs> Uh, Lori Chavez Dreamer, so L Chavez Dreamer on Instagram. Okay, we got an Instagram too. Nice. IG handle. Yeah. 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 Great. yeah. L Chavez Dreamer. I'm there. All right. You heard it here, folks. Go follow the Instagram. Uh, Great, but Lori, thanks again for, for tuning in and uh, everybody, thanks again for, for listening to the pod. Uh, make sure to hit the subscribe button and please give us five stars to make sure that you don't miss an episode and uh, we'll see you again next time. Thanks again. Thanks everyone.